Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. last two decades and thought about the sheer number of fatalities surrounding this case. Can I tell you a secret? That you been killed. What happened? Those kids. Our kids. My, my whole brain's a bunch of missing pieces. That's when it all started. Panic. Hello and welcome to Still Watching True Detective. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Blossom. Each week we break down the latest episode of True Detective, including the latest theories and twists. In this episode, we will be covering the second half of Sunday's premiere, which is Season 3, Episode 2, Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye. So if you haven't watched Season 3, Episode 2, Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, well, I suppose you could listen to this episode, um, but it might be better for you to watch the show first and then come back and hear us talk about it. Uh, this episode was written by Nick Pizzolatto and directed by Jeremy Selnier, and since the two Jeremy Selnier episodes aired back-to-back on Sunday night, it was sort of like we got a little mini, what if Jeremy Selnier did a movie of True Detective? Right, um, yeah. Uh, because originally he was supposed to direct all the episodes of the season, and then he sort of left the production. So this is what remains of of his efforts. Um, Richard, do you have any general thoughts about this episode before we sort of do our little beat-for-beat rundown that we like to do? Um, I mean, you know, I think it was a good second episode. I think it sort of helped clarify timeline stuff a little bit for me. Um, and while also expanding the mystery, um, and I thought there was some really interesting stuff, uh, particularly about the kind of Vietnam vet stuff that we talked a little bit about last week that I think it looks like this season is sort of making that a big thematic hinge point. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that one of the highlights of this episode is, is, uh, you know, an early interrogation scene that we'll get into. Also, some more stuff with Amelia, who is a character that I'm just liking more and more the more I see of her. And then, you know, it ends with a fairly startling, uh, jump that really underlines what we talked about in our first podcast episode, which is that we're dealing with an unreliable narrator in the shape of Marshall Ali's uh, Wayne. So, yeah. All right. So here we go. So, you know, this picks up exactly pretty much where we left off in episode one with, with everyone, all forces out looking for, looking for Julie dragging the river. Uh, we see an examiner dusting, dusting Will's bike for fingerprints. Uh, we get the autopsy report back. We know someone broke his neck. Someone brought him to the cave. This is all very gruesome. Um, 
And then we, we hop over to 1990 and this is where Mahershala Ali delivers. There's a few lines in this episode that I'm going to try to work into conversation this week. And one of them was, I'm pretty easygoing, but go away already. Yeah. Uh, which, <laughs> which he says to, you know, the attorney who's, who's interrogating him in the 1990 plot line. Um, and then we get uh, this Alan Jones character played by John Tenney, uh, sort of promises to talk to Wayne about Julie if Wayne keeps talking to them about, about the case. Uh, yeah, so, he kind of goes yeah. from ant- from seeming antagonist to ally um, in this episode, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, because he used to work for the state's attorney's office, and now he's a- in private practice, and now he's kind of working. It looks to like overturn something that maybe he helped get happen in the first place. So it's kind of an interesting flip. Yeah, or maybe I'm I'm actually unclear what his like because um, the Josh Hopkins character is definitely a private attorney working for the family. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. My sense is that the Alan Jones, uh, this Alan Jones, like, used to be a lower level state's attorney and now is a higher level state's attorney, or district attorney. Um, and, and we find out a little bit about his boss, his old boss in this episode. And, um, by the end of the episode, I believe that Wayne says something like, you good to go toe to toe with your old boss? And Alan Jones says, like, yeah, it's overdue. Like, right. So you're right about sort of correcting past wrongs, I think, but still maybe within the system of, of the attorney's office. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we get some stuff about, um, how they're investigating Tom. They go to the, the shop where he works, that they are looking into the corn husk dolls. Then we get into like one of early in into one of, I think, the highlights of the episode, which is this interrogation scene between the Brett Woodard character played by Michael Gray eyes and, uh, Roland and Wayne. Um, and Brett Woodard is the, is the guy who goes around town collecting trash. Um, he's Native American and he is a Vietnam vet and he has this great conversation. You know, it's fun to see Roland and Wayne at work and how often actually in these interrogations, Roland kind of throws to Wayne with some sort of like, Good cop, not good cop, bad cop, but sort of like, hey, my buddy can relate to you in this way. And so, you know, I think, you know, Wayne basically says like, uh, Roland basically says, Wayne served, like, you guys have that in common. Why don't you talk about that? And then they have this amazing conversation about what it means to come back. What did you think of this? Yeah, well, I think that that dynamic between Roland and Wayne is really interesting, too, because it was juxtaposed in this episode with some some questions in the 2015 timeline, but also in the 1980 timeline, about, like, the way that Wayne is treated by his superiors and by, like, the kind of police and attorney community around him because he's black. And, you know, he says to Roland at one point, he was like, you know, they listen to you. Um, you know, in a way that they don't listen to him. And which is funny because we're seeing this story through Wayne's perspective and we see him being deferred to by Roland. And yet in the broader reality that uh, the power differential was much different. So I think it's kind of, a, uh, there's an inversion happening that um, I think this episode hands- handles pretty carefully and pretty well. Are there any um, pieces of fiction or nonfiction about like, uh, the particular state of Vietnam War vets that you have read or found interesting in the past? Oh, I just think about reading Tim O'Brien, you know, yeah. the thing, the things they carried or the, in the Lake of the Woods or, um, uh, a couple others that, you know, I just kind of read a lot of him when I was in high school or college and he writes so beautifully about that experience. And it's, you know, his per- experience is particular to a white guy in Minnesota. So like it's all varied, but like that, that cer- certainly that fallout, the kind of, um, 
the radical difference between being in a jungle in Southeast Asia for vague reasons that are never really properly explained. Um, and then going home and supposed, you know, supposedly reentering normal life without any sort of heroes welcome, any sort of, you know, really infrastructure to, to help your, your reintroduction. You know, I think that that's, that's all really teased out beautifully in, in the interrogation scene. And, you know, um, Woodard has that line, you know, I miss one, don't get killed was the only thing on my to-do list. Um, and, you know, Wayne says, yeah, it's really hard to kind of realign your whole worldview um, past that point. So I, I don't know. I just thought there was a lot of like good, um, maybe bordering on a little bit overdone, kind of overcooked writing, but I, I, I liked it. I think the writing was a little overcooked, but I think the performances really sell, like sold it for me. Um, this actor, Michael Grace, who I've never seen anything, has just like a very distinctive way of talking that, um, and his like sort of slow, like, you know, discursive way of, ta- discursive way of talking and Wayne actually kind of meeting him on that energy. So it's just like two like slow talkers talking to each other is, uh, I don't know, it was, it was pretty interesting, but, um, yeah. And he, you know, he says basically, he's like, I'm not one of those burnouts. I'm, he's saying he's not one of the Vietnam vets who, you know, turn to drugs or crime or whatever. He's saying, I do what I can to live. I just don't know how you do what you do. I'm saying that to Wayne. How do you put on the suit? Like, how do you pretend that life is the institutional life, like the, the sort of like living the way that the government has prescribed to people, like, you know, saying yes to a boss, you know, all that stuff, all the stuff that clearly, um, sort of all of that broke for Woodard in Vietnam in a way that I guess it didn't quite for Wayne. So I thought that was an interesting look. It wasn't, you know, about like the upstanding vet versus the low life one. It was near, you know, m- more multifaceted than that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, like, I, I'm going to co-sign your, you, you, you saying like Tim O'Brien, like if someone wants to do supplemental reading for the season of True Detective, which why not? I love a book club. Um, Tim O'Brien's the thing they, the things they carried, um, or in the Lake of the Woods, either one, um, both great. And then also David Wood, uh, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist wrote a three part series a couple years ago, actually about, uh, veterans in the Iraq and Afghani wars, uh, and coming home and their signature wound. But Noah Hawley, um, years ago when I talked to him about Fargo season two, he told me that that series by David Wood, um, about the signature wound, uh, it was his inspiration for wanting to write about the Vietnam War vets coming home and, and what that meant. And so I, you know, just, just thinking about the way our veterans are treated now, the way they were treated then and, and what that all means. Uh, and then this, this uh, scene wraps up with a, with like a one, two punch of like something that made me kind of laugh and something that made me like really feel like we tap into the overarching theme of the season. First, the Woodard character, when he's asked if he likes kids, and he goes, what the fuck is the right answer to that? And I'm like, exactly. No one ever like, yes, what is the right answer to that? Like, that was like such a canny, good response. Um, And then he says, ever been in a place you, you couldn't leave? And you couldn't stay both at the same time. And this is obviously like descriptive of the way in which, uh, Wayne is sort of like hopping through time in his memory. Um, but at this, you know, so like remembering, and we get a lot in this episode about the reason why Wayne is so interested in revisiting this case is because it also means revisiting his relationship with Amelia. And so like the, the pleasure that comes with the pain of revisiting this traumatic time in his life. Um, but there's also a later, um, a later 
sentence from Tom, a Skip McNary's character, where he's like, uh, he says he feels like he, he can't go to sleep and he can't wake up. So this idea of like liminal spaces, the spaces between, um, I think the season's really concerned with. I think we got some of that in like some of the, uh, literary, you know, illusion stuff, some of the poetry that we had in episode one. And here it is said more overtly by a couple characters in this episode. So that's just something to look for anytime a character, I think, says something about being kind of in between something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll roll along a little more quickly, but I do want to say first that there's a trend, there was a transition sound between the 1980 storyline and the 2015 storyline that sounded to me like helicopter blades whirring. Um, but I could have just been making that up. So, you know, no, I think that's entirely likely. Like, uh, like we said on the first episode, I have watched ahead a little bit and this is not a spoiler, but at all, but like those sort of sensory kind of things only grow. Okay, great. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we're hopping back and forth in time, but we, we want, we want to stop on this town meeting that they have in 1980. What's important here, I think, is this growing sense of panic that is, that is underlined throughout this episode in the town. Uh, and then we meet this sort of important new character played by, uh, character actor Brett Cullen, who I've seen on West Wing, Friday Night Lights, Lost Damages. He's that real tall Texan drink of water, uh, who's usually an authoritarian figure because he's so tall. And, um, IMDb has him listed as Greg Larson. The episode calls him Gerald Kent. So I'm going to call him Gerald Kent for our purposes here. Um, but, you know, basically he's in charge. He's facility. He's a, he's a high up DA. He's facilitating the FBI investigation and the police investigation. And, um, what's important that we find out he has an election coming. So he has his own vested interest in how this is all handled. Yeah. And, and, and I think that like in, in jumping back and forth and seeing the town's panic, like, um, you know, you get a sense of like where it was sort of socioeconomically in 1980. We see, we, you know, it, it at least had a sort of thriving community center that's now in 2015 kind of, um, fa- you know, fallen into disrepair. And I think that like, you know, there's something there about, um, you know, the middle class in middle America and the sort of arc downward arc of that, um, you know, socioeconomic bracket. Um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that the show's really going into like, economics exactly but like i think it, it it kind of deepens our understanding of the community that we're that this is all taking place in yeah it's so interesting because one of the townspeople in 1980 says like there's heroin in in like in our town and i'm like oh god worse things are coming for your town yeah. uh mm-hmm. in terms of like drug epidemics um but yeah and it's unclear whether or not it's it's like a socioeconomic downturn or uh i think the subtitle of amelia's book is something about like the community this murder ruined so like you know like did is it the murder that like just made this town fall apart or is it as you say like some of the socioeconomic things that we've seen happen to a lot of smaller towns in america uh we will find out or maybe both um but so we, you know, they're, they're handing out some, you know, photos of Julie, photos of the backpack to, to the kids. Um, Wayne says he has his like sort of redneck radar up for some of their suspicions, which involve like, you know, gay panic or Satan worship panic or like whatever it is, uh, that relates to some of the true, true crime stuff that you were, uh, talking about in last week's uh, episode. Um, and then he, you know, Wayne enlists Amelia to help basically. And we find out that she, uh, she has a boyfriend. It seems like maybe so. Um, 
Yeah. And then, and then we hop forward in time and, and here's, we get some more stuff with like Henry and Wayne. And this is where, once again, I wanted to say that I really like Ray Fisher and I especially really like him in this role. What do you think of, of like the Henry character and what we see of him in this episode? Well, I'm curious to see where, where it's going to go, you know, because like they cast this up and coming actor, they've given him, you know, a fair amount of screen time thus far. We meet his family, um, you know, his wife and children in this episode. Um, we hear more about his sister who, you know, it seems has been estranged from her father for some time. So uh, clearly there is some, some sort of family history that we're going to get. And, and I would assume that, uh, Ray Fisher will be toward the center of that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued and I think he's great. And I think he and Mark Ali are really good together. Yeah. And I'm still, I'm just really, really enjoying the, um, this, older performance that you mentioned isn't isn't very like stagey from Ellie, but it's like it's just really lived in but at the same time like you he just looks like quite sleepy a lot of the time but if you if you look to his 1980 energy it's a similar sort of sleepy energy so it's interesting because it's not just like elderly it's just like this is what this man has been like his whole life you know and compare that to uh, uh say green book where the energy is like so different coming off of ali you don't have to see green book to compare it just take my word for it it's very different so there you go <laughs> um <laughs> and then you know and then and then wayne wayne tells his son a little bit more about like why he wants to be part of this um tv show like the that the director said she show him something and Henry thinks she's just baiting Wayne. Um, but, but it really comes back to again and again, him wanting to revisit, revisit Amelia and revisit his time with her. So that's all part of, it's all one. Yeah. He wants to do that, but he's, there's also some, you know, there's something, some question, you know, I think that, that both the 1990 and 2015 timelines are Wayne, you know, suspecting that there's something that's being withheld from him. Um, so it's interesting to see him sort of investigating the case that way through the, uh, through other investigators, you know, rather than kind of going directly to like clues or whatever. Um, you know, and I think it's intriguing when, you know, in, with this whole, the whole TV show plotline, what is brought up, you know, this is like kind of the stuff that will pop on Reddit or whatever, like about the, um, the, you know, she mentions the Franklin scandal, which was this kind of hoax weird thing in Nebraska where a lot of government officials were accused of, you know, pedo- like running a pedophile ring. Um, and it's sort of a thing that persisted for a long time. She, she mentioned something else. This, um, what is oh, the it? The broken spiral. The broken spiral, which apparently Reddit told me was mentioned in the first season of the show. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. I, yeah, so I tried Googling that to no avail and it might have put me on a watch list because I like came across this FBI thing of like FBI symbols for pedophilia. Spi- a spiral in a, I think in a triangle is a like common FBI like symbol for pedo. I don't know why the FBI has symbols for pedophilia, but like apparently it's, it's a common thing. But like, uh, you know, large scale pedophilia trafficking rings was a major plot point. Or, or the plot point of season one, right? And so, um, you know, if, if it were that again, I would be surprised. Or if it were that again and connected, I guess I would be kind of surprised. But maybe it's all one thing. The thing about her bringing up the Franklin scandal in 2015, though, is that that, that was like a 1989, like, hoax. So by, so her bringing it up with any, and giving it any measure of credibility, which she kind of does when she talks to him about it, um, makes me doubt her 
credibility. You know, yeah, it kind of turns her into a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, that she's trafficking in hoaxes or at least putting hoaxes in front of like a confused older man and sort of pretending that it's real, you know, like these, these kind of things. Um, I do, I did like her showing him, um, showing him like the true crime website and Wayne being like, this is what people do now. Like, okay. And I'm like, oh yeah, big time. It's what we do now. Um, and then she also says the, the most like delicious sentence of all time, which she goes, I'm interested in the intersectionality of marginalized groups within authoritarian and systemic racist structures. And like both Wayne and Henry just like look at her like, all right, thank you. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's something that we see later from Wayne himself later in the episode. He tells her that that wasn't really his experience, but we find out from him later in the episode that it was. So, but he um, just like processed it differently, you know, and I think we learned a little bit about his politics in this episode. You know, he's, he says to Amelia, like, I hope you're not a Democrat or whatever, or don't tell me if you are or something. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like a conservative guy who like maybe does not, I mean, conservative in different terms. And it was yeah. something years ago, but like, d- like he approaches all of this from a very different perspective than, you know, certainly um, a TV host from 2015 would, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and let's just hop re- back really quickly before we move on to say that we met a new, uh, or, or we finally met a suspect that we heard about in the first episode, which is Creepy Cousin Dan. Um, oh, right. Yeah. And played by Michael Graziati. And, um, uh, this, this pinged my wig and beard alert, like, very strong. Cause he is wearing, <laughs> like, such a wig and such a beard that, like, I feel like we're definitely going to see him again in a later timeline. Uh, but basically they ask if, if they can search his home and he says yes. He's, like, very defensive, as you might imagine. And then we meet Tom's parents who imply that Julie wasn't Tom's daughter. Um, after all, that maybe Lucy cheated on him. That so. he was, like, out working on an oil rig or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, who knows? Um, I really, I, I loved Tom's dad, who was just like, not today, Louise, not today. Like, that yeah. was his only line. It was great. Um, That's another actor who's popped up in a bunch. I don't know his name. But. Yeah, yeah, I forgot to look him up. But, yeah, he's a great one. Uh, so, yeah, so then we've got, like, Amelia playing detective in 1980, even though she's a teacher and basically, like, asking some of the kids on the playground about about some things. Uh, she sees the, I'm just going to call them the West Memphis Three. She sees those three three teens sort of tensely talking to each other. Um, and then she talks to a kid named Mike, uh, which leads into a, a more formal interrogation with, with Wayne and Roland and Amelia and Mike. Uh, and Mike, we saw sort of in episode one kind of waving, hopefully, at Julia she bike past. And so this, this theory that Amelia has, that Mike has a little crush on her, seems pretty borne out by what we see here. Um, but he tells some stories about a cornhus doll and maybe some people that he saw on Halloween, uh, that were dressed as go, 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 ghosts. And, um, so I'm hoping it's like real ghosts actually, um, did it. But this, this is, a, this is a major lead for them. And it all comes wrapped up with Mahershala Ali making lightsaber noises. Uh, so what more could you ask for? Which is amazing. And yeah. like, just like a little <laughs> subtle, cute nod to like his lighter side, you know, um, yeah. which we're not seeing much of in the show. So it's yeah. true. Um, yeah, but that's once again another instance where Roland, like, threw the, the interrogation to Wayne to be like, oh, hey, my bud really likes Star Wars. Yeah, and that's the thing is, like, Wayne is such an interesting character because, yeah, we find out that he is, you know, a conservative, uh, which should be, I guess, that's surprising, maybe. Um, but he's a Star Wars and a comic book fan. So, you know. Oh, yeah, he mentioned Silver Surfer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
you know, uh, which which meant more than than it does now. Now everyone is a comic book and Star Wars fan, but in 1980, like a grown ass man being like, oh yeah, I like comic books is like is a different proposition altogether. So, um. All right, and and so they get this great lead, and they're gonna canvas the neighborhood. And while they're doing it, they pick up they pick up Tom, and uh, you know that's where when um, Scoot another like great teary performance because oh because Tom tried to go back to work and he was drunk and he was sort of like kindly told to go home uh, and he quit. Uh, but anyway, um, so they have this lead about the neighborhood about the Cornhus dolls, and uh, they tell the attorney and the FBI about it. And then the district attorney goes and blows their lead on TV and tells, you know, tells everyone this, this is where the district attorney says something like all my constituents value privacy and property rights, which is just like such a Republican thing to say, Um, you know, like stand your ground sort of stuff. And so, um yeah. So, so, so we, well, cause the- their idea is to go house to house. Yeah not tell anyone what they have just like kind of like be like we're just searching in general you know they're not gonna like it but like it's they're helping the the investigation you know whatever um but like you know you you never want or you usually don't want like the person you know a criminal to know what you know about them or whatever and then yeah it all gets shot to shit and so they have to kind of scramble i want to go back really quickly to the notion that julie got the cornhouse doll on halloween and say like is that the worst thing you could get in your trick-or-treat bag at halloween is it <laughs> is it worse than wax lips well or... this was the era when they were when people were putting razor blades in apples oh, it's true. so it's true a razor blade in an apple is the worst thing you could get no, the worst thing to get is a charleston chew <laughs> the worst thing to get is a sugar daddy because it'll just pull your teeth out oh yeah <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, have you ever had a wax lip, by the way? I feel like they were, they, we like would get them some, like er, when I was a kid in, at Halloween, but I don't know that we ever, were you we supposed to eat them? Yeah. Like I, I haven't had them. I don't know that they distribute them anymore, but definitely in like the eighties and early nineties, the wax lips were a thing. And I, everyone I know ate one exactly once or had some exactly once or yeah. whatever. And then you're like, this is wax. Why? All right. Anyway, moving. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I used to like to eat Play-Doh, like genuinely. Oh, okay. It was okay. so salty. Good. <laughs> so yeah. salty and delicious. Um, but yeah, so, so, I mean, so what we find in this episode is like initially Wayne and Roland were like so happy to collaborate with the FBI and with the DA. Like they had no pushback on the FBI coming on board. Um, because it's a kidnapping case and all this sort of stuff. And you get the FBI involved if it's a kidnapping or a missing child case. They had no problem with that. But then like they found by sharing all their information in this morning debrief that they had their lead sort of blown, uh, by the DA. So I imagine that going forward, they're going to be less willing to cooperate, uh, with their investigation, share their information, you know? Um, and we have this whole side plot. Um, which at first, the first time I watched this episode, I was like, why is this here? And the second time I kind of, I liked it better, but basically, um, Roland and Wayne get, a, a the name of a suspicious guy who's got a, like, you know, passed with child molestation or pedophilia in some, some manner. They get his name from a vice cop. They go and hunt him down and then they go tie him up in a barn and beat him up, uh, after staying up all night and taking Ben's a train. Um, and so, and then they and then he it turns out he has an alibi and they let him loose. But we see here like the like a a darker side of Wayne where not only is he fully willing to like completely, you know, 
violate habeas corpus or whatever with this, yeah. with this, with this suspect. Um, but the, the particular threat he issues to him about getting raped in prison, um, kind of takes even Roland back a little bit. Um, because it's so, it's, I mean, it's racially tinged. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's violent in a very particular way. Um, you know, so he's got a kind of, I don't know, I guess you could say anger sort of burbling under the surface that, um, is being kind of meted out a little bit here and there. Absolutely. And I think that that's what this, this whole side trail, you know, because basically at the end of it, they're like, well, we wasted a day, but like, did they, because like, this is what they want to be doing. They want, like, we heard about this in episode one where they're like, Ooh, maybe we'll be able to go beat someone up is something they like literally said to each other. So like, they want this righteous excuse to like, just indulge in their, in their most like primal instincts, basically. Right. In, in terms of like Roland just going to town on this guy all tied up. Uh, but they feel like they're justified in doing so because he's got, um, these molestation charges or convictions in his past. It's funny. I was a uh, quick sidebar. I was watching all the Indiana Jones movies recently and like, it's so satisfying to watch Indiana Jones punch, punch Nazis. Like nobody, nothing could be finer. But in the second film, Temple of Doom, there are no Nazis. But there are, and, and in Temple of Doom is deeply racially problematic, but there is like a sect of, um, evil, you know, Kali worshiping, whatever, who enslave children. And it's like, oh, if you enslave children, you're as bad as a Nazi. You definitely can get punched too. You know what I mean? It's like, you need to have this excuse, like always punch a Nazi. Yes. Always punch a, <laughs> right. a pedophile. You know, like you can't get too mad at Wayne and Roland, but you, you have to recognize that this is a dark, dark thing that they're doing. So, right. All right. Um, I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. In the midst all of that, we get Wayne and Amelia having this like little conversation in the bar, which as you mentioned revealed to us, um, Wayne's political le- leanings. It reveals that he's a comic book fan, but it also reveals some stuff about Amelia. Um, you know, not only that she was, in, you know, involved in fringe Black Panther stuff in San Francisco, blah, blah, but like she has this whole thing that she does where she goes to St. Louis and pretends to be someone else's very, Carrie Coon in the leftovers, as far as I'm concerned. But like, and she tells him that to sort of like uh, offset his feeling of strangeness, right? You know, he, you know, he kind of talks about how he feels kind of, uh, you know, weird or sort of on the, you know, uh, abnormal. And so she's like, "Well, I do this thing, and that's kind of nuts, right?" Yeah. Um, you know, and also she mentions when she's talking about the, her fringe Black Panther stuff, she's like, "You know, some stuff happened, none of it good, and then she came home." So, like, I don't know if we're ever going to find out what that none of that good was, um, but it does add an interesting kind of mystery to her her character. These are all little red flags in a show called True Detective, right? If someone says like, "Oh, there's some weird stuff in my past," or "I like to to go to a different town and change my name sometimes just for the fun of it," like th- this is some stuff to remember. I would say, um, like, there's someone- also the way that she like really like feels very seems very eager to insert herself into the case. You know, like, "Oh, can I can I can I hold on to that?" Like, I'll ask around at school, I'll ask the kids, and we really see her her doing her own kind of investigation. So yeah. 
whether or not that's just setting the, the kind of tone that she, or the, the precedent that she's going to, you know, write this book or, or if it's, there's supposed to be more to it, but, um, you know, she's an interesting character. Yeah. And like, honestly, Richard, if you told me that you go to St. Louis and change your name and just do whatever, I would find it like really charming. Like you're my manic pixie dream co-host or whatever. But like in the context of True Detective, I'm like, I'm just going to write that down. Like I'll just note it, you know? A friend and I used to go to bars. He's Australian and I would do a really bad Australian accent and we'd pretend to be, I would pretend to be Australian and like talk to people and say that I was um, a magazine reporter from Sydney writing about like (laughs) gay nightlife in New York. And uh, one time one guy really believed us and he stuck with us for the whole night. We had, I had to keep the presents up for like several hours. I've done that. um, I've done that with an Irish accent and with a Russian accent. Um, And if like someone's really drunk, you can get away with it. And then, yeah. And then you have to like come up with a whole uh, elaborate backstory, but it's fun. It's fun. I don't blame Amelia. I'm just saying like, you know, uh, I'm, I've just written it down. Um, and, you know, th- this is like, I'm charmed and, and wary of, of the Amelia Wayne courtship. I'm charmed by the fact that he looked up that poem because once again, to say in 1980, I looked up that poem you were reading. There's so much effort involved in that. Like, did he, have, did he go to the library? Did he go to the bookstore? Like, you couldn't just Google it. Like mm-hmm. I did. Like he put in some effort to make a connection with her. And I was really charmed by him saying, like, I have some thoughts on it, but I'm not ready to talk about it yet or whatever. And I was just yeah. like, that's, that's a charming thing to say. But yeah, then he also says he doesn't wear clip on ties because he's afraid of being strangled. So, you know, Wayne is a, Wayne contains multitudes. Um, and then he says, I like to laugh is the thing. Which we have, we've seen him laugh once. Not ever, never. Yeah. Close to a smile with that lightsaber business but you know so um anyway uh yeah so yeah as we mentioned we we watched their league get blown on tv and this is where um wayne and roland had that conversation that you mentioned where wayne says like i talk it doesn't mean anything like you can say something because you're white and they will listen to you and we had talked in episode one about um you know what what race was this character originally supposed to be um i've since Googled our own content on vanityfair.com and it like, apparently the character is supposed to be white. I had a question of whether or not maybe the character is supposed to be Native American at some point. Like, Mahershala Ali, I guess, like, had to, con- had to lobby Nick Pizzolatto to be like, hi, I'm a soon to be Oscar winner. Like, please catch, cast me in your, in your movie, uh, in your TV show. So they changed the race. So any of this stuff about, um, you know, Wayne's racial identity or his experience with stuff that they like, you know, did another pass through to put in basically. So that's interesting to me. Um, and then we, then we are up to 1990. We've got Alan and Wayne grabbing some beers and talking about the miss, the Julie who has resurfaced as Alan promised. Like, and that's the thing is like Alan to me seems to be leaning on their shared, like, cause it seems like they got along in 1980 as well. They could like, they could converse in 1980 and whatever happens with that case, it feels like Alan and Wayne have like some kind of through 1982, 1990 affinity with each other. So they grab these beers. They're talking about Julie uh, and he's like, Al- it's a full pr- fl- fingerprint. It's definitely her. Yeah, I still don't believe it, but okay. Um, and then, um, you know, Alan says the man's family didn't have the resources for an investigator. So once again, we find out more about whoever this man is who was maybe wrongfully convicted of this crime back in 1980, who is appealing the case. Um, 
So it's a man, uh, so that leaves out Lucy Purcell, I guess, who doesn't, whose family doesn't have a lot of resources. There are a couple of options there. We could be talking about Tom. We could be talking about, um, you know, Woodard. We could talk about a bunch of different people, but that's, that's sort of, uh, like, I doubt we're talking about one of the teens, but maybe we are. The, uh, one of the teens would be a man now, so it could be that. I don't know. Uh, or it could be creepy cousin Dan. Uh, I'm sure everyone has their theories. <laughs> All right. Um, I have one that I, I'm going to get to at the end of the episode. Okay. Um, and then we, you know, we've got 1990, Wayne comes home, Henry's little, Becca, his estranged daughter is there. They're being very cute. Amelia is there. She's got a great 1990 wig on. She's got galleys of her book. Like everything is like coming up Amelia in 1990, basically. Well, except um, she has galleys of the book and now, I mean, well, I guess she, she finds out in this scene. Now it's all kind of like up up in the air because you know presumably she wrote the book with this one man we don't know who convicted and now it's like oh maybe not yeah so she says the paperback could issue an update if the appeal goes through or something that's a pretty big update yeah it's a huge update and then we as we mentioned last week's episode the back copy of the book says like julie never came home you know what I mean? So, like, would that actually go to print with Julie Never Came Home if that actually is Julie in 1990? There's some language from Elisa Montgomery, the Sarah Gadden character, the TV TV director, where she keeps saying, after what happened with Julie and her father in 1990, and you left the force. Like, that's the main clue we're getting from 2015 is, like, something happens in 1990 with Julie and her father, Tom. Uh, that made him leave the force. Now, does that mean Julie is actually alive and an adult in, in the Walgreens in Nebraska or wherever? Um, I don't know. Uh, does is it Sarah mean- Gadden secretly Julie? Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Best casting of all time. Um, anyway, so, uh, so we find out a couple more things like the, namely that the Purcells got a ransom note. Um, you know, and it, that says, do not worry, worry, Julie is in a good place and safe. The children should, S-H-U-D, laugh, do not look, let go, which is creepy that the children should laugh part is super creepy. Um, and then we get... Uh, they like Wayne, to laugh, just like Wayne. Just like Wayne, who doesn't love to laugh? Uh, and then we get Wayne having dinner with his son, Henry, uh, his daughter-in-law, Heather, and his two grandkids. Um and he can't remember his estrangement with Rebecca. And he sort of asks about it a couple times. And this is where I really like, I think the actress playing Heather is good, but I really loved Ray Fisher as Henry as, uh, as like, he's just such like a powerful, like physical presence, like such a macho physical presence. They even mention it in the flashback when his mom, Amelia says something like, you're so athletic. You're going to be so athletic. You already are. You know, so Ray Fisher is this like, you know, quarterback looking like so handsome and to see his like helpless frustration with his father's degradation mental degradation is um i i I find it really affecting so yeah yeah um yeah and so then lastly uh you know the the sort of dinner conversation abruptly ends and we flash to wayne standing in the middle of the street um, he's at the corner of Shoepick and Briarwood, uh, in his, in his PJs in his robe, looking absolutely lost and confused. So this is just a further, you know, information about the state of his mind and the state of his ability to keep things in a coherent timeline. Did those uh, street signs mean anything? The only thing I thought is that Briarwood, 
Um, in last week's interview with Mamie Gummer, she mentioned this idea, which we haven't talked about a lot of like the, the cautionary fairy tale aspect of like two kids go missing in the woods, sort of Hansel mm-hmm. and Gretel kind of stuff. So Briarwood sounds very like fairy tale to me, but other than that, I have nothing for shoe pick at all. So okay. there you go. Um, all right. So I think we covered almost everything. Um, I might have missed something. Please email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail if I missed anything, which leaves us. Richard, time for your theory. Okay, so if it's not this man, who whoever that is, who like I I think we're being sort of led to believe was wrongly convicted, um, I think it's Amelia. I okay, so that's that's the theory that I read this week. That that's what made me like stop on her whole like I changed my name when I go to St. Louis thing. I also I'm also on team. It's Amelia. <laughs> that she wanted to she wanted something to write about. Here was this, she, so she created something to write about and then inserted wow. herself into the investigation. Um, you know, we also, do we know how she died? No. So something maybe, that, I don't know. Something that, uh, the, um, someone on Twitter responded to me about one of the true detective pieces that I wrote on Vanity Fair that they got like a, Michelle McNamara vibe. Michelle McNamara is, uh, Patton Oswald's, uh, late wife who was a true crime writer and who died, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago. But that was like, that was a, like a brain aneurysm and nothing related to the case. But like, um, I, I, I don't know. Possibly that could be informant, but this idea of like the over involvement of the true crime writer or the over involvement of any true crime investigator in the case is something I definitely think this season is, is interested in telling because you've got these two pivot points of like 1990 is when Amelia's book comes out and 2015 is when this show is trying to be made. And so it's just sort of like this crime through the lens of, of true crime investigators. Right. And like, it's fascinating. Maybe, maybe Wayne in 2015, is doing a TV interview not to find out like who might have really done it, but because he's trying to figure out if they, if Alyssa knows it's, it's getting to the, that Amelia like, did right, it. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it, maybe she showed him the, all the, like the fake, the hoaxy stuff, the Franklin stuff, um, to kind of like gauge his reaction. Cause like maybe she knows that's all bullshit, you know? And, and it's essentially being like, this is how you could sort of like, frame a sex scandal you know but but it's i you know i don't know uh, maybe she i just feel like maybe she's closing in and that's what he's nervous about yeah i i feel like maybe uh, so do you feel like 1990 he leaves the force because he finds out that amelia did it and he right. spends the next 15 years covering for her and he and here he's engaging in this because he wants to continue to try to protect her You're right exactly. uh, for what she did yeah. yeah i really like that theory too i'm on board uh, we'll see how stupid and wrong we might have been, but, um, I mean, well, the last thing I'll say is that, um, True Detective has always had this, uh, you know, you, you brought up the Emily Nussbaum, uh, like famous, infamous New Yorker, uh, essay about True Detective season one, how she was like, what the hell is with everyone liking the show? It is such macho nonsense, right? And like, its treatment of female characters is, is appalling. And, um, <clears throat> And then in, in season two, we get Rachel McAdams, who's like, um, I don't know, she's like turned on by knives and there's a lot of like 
orgies and and not a lot of not I wouldn't say like a ton of great female characters in that one either. Rachel McAdams doing the best she can with what she has. And then I've read some interviews from the cast in this season and they're just like we've we feel like the show has really learned from its past mistakes and we're doing right by our female characters this time around. Um and you know, I do quite like the Amelia character a lot. Um and I'm interested to see like what I feel like it means if she is the killer here, especially since this, these crimes are usually like so often male driven. So yeah, it's a, uh, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. I just got like a tinge of it watching this episode. I was like, I don't know. I just, but there felt like something like, I just don't feel like she's there by accident. You know what I mean? Like, like there, 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 she hurt that character. That whole thing serves a, a bigger purpose to the story than just him like grieving a wife or, I don't know, or sort of examining how someone might profit off of like a tragedy. I don't know, but we'll see. Yeah. Once again, it's very, um, it's a very sharp objects to have like a woman, like lure people who, you know, kids who trust her into the woods Mm -hmm. kind of thing. She also, you know, she mentioned that Will was like a kid that nobody paid any attention to. So like, you know, she mentioned that in her interview. So that's like something, I think that's something that, that, people well i don't know i think it's something people do when they target victims sometimes it's sort of like find people who find victims who feel isolated and that sort of thing so um yeah all right well uh richard and i have either completely cracked the case wide open or we're so hilariously off the mark we can't wait to find out um but that is our current our current theory mm-hmm. email us your theory still watching pod at gmail.com richard until episode three where can people find you well, of course, on uh, Ryla's on Twitter, VF.com, all that. Um, but you know what? Let's go to St. Louis and just be be, be new people. <laughs> uh, you will find me trying also on VanityFair.com, also on Twitter, which I wrote this. But you will find me teaching Mahershala Ali how to wear a necktie and not feel like it's going to strangle him. Um, and I think we'll we'll accomplish that mission by the time we come back next week.